Thank you, Pastor. You're kind. I left my phone there. If you'll call and just read that, what you said to my wife. <laughs> I'd like for her to listen to that one time. Good. Brother Mike, I'm glad to see you. We pray for you often in the position that God has placed you in. And uh, thankful I get to hear you preach today as well. It's good to be with you all in Tennessee. And listen, uh, it's Friday, right? Friday morning, 9, 10. Y'all have to be. You couldn't get a crowd like this in Alabama unless Nick Saban was speaking <laughs> at 9 o'clock on Friday morning. So I'm convinced y'all must be the godly of Tennessee right here this morning. So take your copy of God's Word. Just get to the Gospel of Luke, and I'll catch up with you in a minute. I left about 4.50 this morning, Birmingham, and drove up. It was a beautiful morning. It was a morning just like it was January the 19th, uh, just two years ago, a little over two years ago, 2018, uh, when the unbelievable happened in the 50th state. There was across every form of media, an emergency broadcast warning from the emergency broadcast system across television, over radio. If you had a smartphone, every smartphone in the Hawaiian Islands went off with a warning that said this, ballistic missile incoming to Hawaii. Seek shelter immediately. This is not a drill. Now, for 38 minutes, the people of Hawaii actually thought that the leader of North Korea had fired a nuclear missile on the 50th state. Most people did not seek shelter, but where are you going to go on an island if somebody's going to blow it up with a nuclear weapon? There's nowhere to go. Um, most people just carried on with life. There was one guy on the golf course who sent a video. He was out at 8 something in the morning playing golf. He sent a video to his wife and children and said, Honey, I can't get home fast before the missile hits, so I'm just going to finish playing until it's all over with. <laughs> but you know what most people did in those 38 moments, 38 minutes? Most people, interestingly enough, got on the phone with somebody or through their email or through a text message, they sent one single message to a certain person, a person they'd been upset with, that said, will you forgive me? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? What if you had 38 minutes left in your life? What if we just began to count down, we had 38 minutes left, what would you do in the next 38 minutes? I don't know what you would do, but I want to tell you this, I can almost assure you forgiveness would be uppermost in your mind. It's interesting because as Jesus made his way up to Jerusalem to be crucified, a little more than a week before that would happen or about a week before it would take place, what was on his mind was your forgiveness as well. So take your copy of God's Word and let me show you that in the Gospel of Luke. Now let me take you to uh, a parable that is only given to us in the Gospel of Luke. It's the parable of the Minas. Now, I, we're in the South. We're all Southerners here unless somebody's infiltrated. Um, when I say Mena, I'm not talking about what you fish with. I'm talking about a fourth or a third of an ounce of gold uh, that represented about four months' salary. It was about a third of a year's salary 
That was a minna. That is what Jesus is referencing in the 19th chapter of uh, Luke's gospel. And you find this parable only in Luke. Now, let me just tell you at the outset, don't confuse this with the gospel of the talents that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 25 when he's in the temple. Jesus is just now leaving Jericho when he begins to share this parable with the disciples. It's entirely different. They're two different parables, so don't confuse the two. Luke's gospel was written by Luke, supposedly, and uh, I won't get into the debate that Dr. Allen would probably win on the issue of Luke. Uh, he claims that Luke was not a Gentile. Most scholars do believe that he was a Gentile. And he writes his gospel, and listen to what he says in the first chapter, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek name, uh, meaning lover of God, one who loved God. He is called most excellent, which would have been a title. Uh, so this guy's nobility. This guy is a person of position and rank and authority, and Luke is writing out literally this gospel for this guy uh, to read. The gospel of Luke was basically written for the Greeks. Luke uses the term son of man more than any other gospel writer, and he is showing in his gospel that the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, you're going to come to that phrase in the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. So let me put the parable now. There's the book context. Let me get the parable in the chapter context. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He is headed there to be arrested and to be tried and to be crucified. Uh, he's been heading to Jerusalem since the 9th chapter and about the 51st verse of, the Luke, uh, of Luke's gospel. Uh, he's headed there, he is determined to get there, but on his way, now you get into the immediate context of the parable, he goes to the city of Jericho. He's passing through there. You know the story well. He passes by a tree, and there is a little guy who is up a tree and out on a theological limb, like a lot of pe preachers in the convention I know of. They're up a tree, and they're just out on a limb out here. And as Jesus passes by, he looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down. I'm going to your house and I'm going to have a meal. Now, that's one of the reasons why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much was because he would sit at a meal. Now, we're going to go out and have a meal in just a little bit. We'll all sit together. We go out to McDonald's or to the Waffle House or somewhere like that. We're sitting with people all around. But in Jesus' day, to sit down at a meal with somebody indicated that there was a deep love, a, an intimacy, a deep friendship that was there. And for Jesus to sit down with people like Zacchaeus, who was seen as the most notorious sinner in Jericho because he had betrayed his own people, the Jews, now sided with the Romans, who were the occupying force, and was collecting taxes for them. And out of the taxes he collected, he also paid his own salary. Now, for Jesus to sit down with this guy was more than they could stomach. It was more than they could handle. But Jesus goes to his house. And as Jesus goes to his house, I want you to watch now what happens. Uh, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, stop. 
said to him, Lord, behold, half of my possessions, I'm in verse 8, I'll give to the poor, and if I, I, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Now, listen, let me tell you something. You know he got right with God at that point. There's no question about it there. I'm going to give back four times as much. You ever, have you ever said, I'm going to go down to Tennessee Power and pay them four times as much as I owe them? No, you have not. Um, I never have either. Uh, anywhere I've ever lived. But listen, let me tell you, the, the Lord has gotten hold of this guy's heart. Now watch it what Jesus says in verse 9, because this sets up the parable. I'm going to show you that. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too, now look at what Jesus adds here, is a son of Abraham. Well, he was a Jew. Wasn't he already a son of Abraham? Not according to Paul. Paul said not everybody who was circumcised is a son of Abraham. Uh, you remember what Scripture says about Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. He is saying, Jesus is saying, this is what has happened to Zacchaeus. That Zacchaeus now has put his faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as Messiah, and that like Abraham, now he's a real son of Abraham because he's put his faith in the Lord. And Jesus adds, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, watch. You've got, Lord, I've given you so much context. I've given you all this context now they're leaving the house of Zacchaeus. You leave Jericho and you walk straight up. It is about 20 miles or so as the crow flies and it is all uphill. You're moving from the lowest point or one of the lowest spots on earth up to about 3,000, 3,200 feet in elevation. So they're going to walk about 20 miles just almost straight uphill. They leave the house of Zacchaeus, verse 11, while they were listening to these things, present active participle. That means they're listening, they're listening, they're listening, they're listening. Now, what are they listening to? To what has just been said. That Zacchaeus is now a son of Abraham. Salvation has come to his house. These disciples are discussing everything that now has happened in the house of Zacchaeus and how Zacchaeus came to know Christ. That's what they're discussing. They're discussing this thing that Jesus said, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So as they're walking along, listening to this, they're all talking about it, listening to one another, Jesus goes on to tell them a parable because they are thinking something. Now, you've just gotten the conversation. Are you all with me? They've just gotten the conversation. You've just heard what they're saying out loud. Now they're thinking something, which tells me Jesus not only hears what you say, he knows what you think. Lord have mercy. Yeah, I can stop and just wear you out over that, huh? He knows what you think. So they are thinking. He's going to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed in their minds they are thinking that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now let me give you a little Jewish eschatology. Well, I'm going to preach here in a minute, so let me just, I'm, I'm, I'm getting you to it. Here, here we go. Jewish eschatology all believed this, that suddenly Messiah would just appear in 
the temple. They never thought about Bethlehem. They didn't think about a cradle. They didn't think about a manger. Jewish eschatology understood that Messiah, when he came, he would just appear in the temple. And when he appeared in the temple, he would seize the throne of David and he would wrest the country back out of the hands of its enemies. Now, that's what they were wanting. That's what they were looking for. And these disciples are thinking, we're going to get there and this is going to be it. We're going to get there and all of a sudden he's going to just unveil himself as Messiah. He's going to show himself for who he is, this one who works all of this power. And there he is going to seize the throne of his father David. And he is going, listen, two, the, the, two of these guys had put their mother up to come to him and already asked, can't you give one of them the seat on your right and one on your left? And they have argued and debated and they're going to argue and debate still in the city of Jerusalem over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So they're anticipating, so because of that, because now they have seen Zacchaeus and the salvation that came to his house, and because now they're thinking that Christ is going to seize the throne now, Jesus is going to tell them a parable. You're there with me. All right. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to share with them that his ministry is going to be left with them. He's going to say this, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But what Christ leaves to them and what Christ has left to every one of us is the ministry to seek and to share with those that are lost. Now watch, because Jesus is going to give us this. He calls us to risk and invest ourselves in the gospel. To take a risk, to invest yourselves in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we pick it up in verse 12, so he said. You see that? Now he's going to tell them a historical event that had happened in their lifetime. It's one of the only times I ever find that Jesus takes an actual historical event that had happened in their lifetime and out of it he's going to draw an implication of what is about to happen. So let me read this and now since I've already told y'all you must be the cream of Tennessee Baptist to be out on a Friday morning at 9 o'clock. You're going to have to think a little bit this morning, okay? All right. You're the best and the brightest so here we go. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, do business. Uh, the word there is pragmatiomai, means be pragmatic, be practical. Do business. Go out and engage with this. Go out and uh, carry out uh, some business with this. Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now the question is this, what in the world is going on there? What in the world is being talked about? Now here's where you got to let me do some history. So watch me, look at me for just a minute. Here it is. In 4 BC, Herod the Great died and he left three sons. Now he had more than three sons, he just had killed the others. 
along with a couple of wives. There's an old saying in Israel that goes like this, it's better to be Herod's pig than it is to be Herod's son because he wouldn't eat swine flesh, but he'd kill his children and he'd kill his wives too if, if, it, if the notion hit him. So he left three sons. One was Archelaus, one was Antipas, and one was Philip. He left in his will that his son Archelaus would inherit the throne, the crown, the title, king of the Jews, because that's what Caesar had given Herod the Great. Now, Caesar is dead now. Herod is dead now. He had left it originally to Antipas, but uh, right before he died, he changed his will. In fact, Herod had six wills that he left. Now, if you really want to mess your kids up when you die, just do something like that. So he changed his will right before he died. He changed his mind. Antipas will not get that. Archelaus will. And so Archelaus and Antipas and Philip all just fall out into a fight, and they decide, let's go to Rome. Let's let um, Augustus Caesar decide what's going to happen here. So they take off and they head to Rome. Unknown to them, there are citizens, Jewish leaders, that get on a boat and they go to Rome too because they want to meet with Augustus Caesar, and what they're going to do is they're going to tell Caesar, you had better not put this guy as king of the Jews over us. We didn't like his dad, and we like him even less. We won't be able to control the Jews. We won't be able to do anything with them. If you make him king, there's going to be trouble. Now, Augustus was a brilliant administrator, a sorry warrior. But as administrator, he knew, I've got problems here. Then in comes Archelaus and Antipas and Philip, and they all want the position. Augustus sends them away and then calls them back, and he says, this is what I've decided. Now, you'll find this in Matthew chapter 2. If you look there, only one place in the New Testament will you find the name Archelaus, and it's when Joseph and Mary are coming back out of Egypt with the baby Jesus, and they discover that Archelaus now is over Judea, and, they, and, the, and God appears to him and tells him in a dream, don't stop there in Bethlehem. Go on up to Nazareth of Galilee so that the prophecy will be fulfilled that he is called a Nazarene, a Nazarite. Well, here is Archelaus, and Augustus Caesar tells him, I'm not going to give you your father's throne or crown or title, but I'll make you ethnarch. That is ruler of an ethnic group. I'm going to give you Judea proper. But I'm going to give to Antipas all of Galilee, and to Philip I will give Perea everything that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Archelaus is furious. He goes back to Jerusalem, and he rounds up somewhere around 8,000 Jews, and he slaughters them. Now you say, how in the world does this fit into what Jesus is saying? How does this fit into the parable? Jesus is telling them he's going away to receive a kingdom. He uses that as background, and Jesus says, I'm going away, and I'm going away to receive a kingdom. What does Psalm 2 say? God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is going to go away, and the Father is going to give him all the kingdoms of the world. He's coming back. 
But before he goes, this is what he does. He calls in these 10 slaves and he gives them 10 minutes. He gives them exactly the same amount to use. Now, what is that? Because that becomes the question here. What is he giving them? What is he putting into their hands? What is he asking them to do? Is, it, is he giving them money? Is this literally money? No, I don't think so because God doesn't give all of us the same amount. Of money. That's only in, in the, should I say it, the Bernie Sanders kingdom. Um, that's, all, that, that's not, now that's just a joke. Don't, please don't anybody get bent out of shape with me. Um, but we don't. We don't all have the same amount. We're not all given the same thing. So I don't think it's that. You can make that case with the talents, but not with the, with the minas here. Well, is it time? Does he give them all time, the same amount? But we don't all. We all have 24 hours in a day, but we all don't have the same number of days in a life. So I don't think it's money, and I don't think it's time. Is it opportunity? Well, it could be, but I don't think it is because not all of us have the same opportunities. Some of us have greater opportunities than others. Some of us are given some opportunities. Others of us are given many opportunities. So I don't think it's opportunity. Is it truth? You may be getting close to it now. Uh, because let me tell you what we do all have. We do all have the same amount of truth. Here's, here's the truth you have. Now, I don't know what you do with this truth, but let me tell you, we all have the same amount of truth. I have no more. I might be a preacher, but let me tell you something. I have no more truth than you hold right there in your hands right now. You have the same amount of truth as I have. So you may be getting to this and you say, well, pastor, what is it? What are you saying that he left for us to do? I think it's the gospel. I think what he gave to them is a test, and I think it symbolized what he gave to them was the gospel, and he says, I'm going away. They're going to put me to death. He's already told them that a number of times in the gospel of Luke. I've just not taken you back and shown you that. Uh, they never catch it, but he's saying, I am placing this in your hand. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I am leaving you with the ministry of the gospel that you will seek and you will share with that which is lost. And so he gives the gospel there. And you say, well, wait a minute. What is that crazy little verse right there that says this? The citizens hated him and sent them a delegation saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Well, my Lord, have mercy. What is the world saying to the church today? We don't want what you've got. We're not interested in the gospel you preach. We're not interested in all of that. All we want is what we want, and we don't want you coming and telling. He has left us a task in this culture at this time in our society and generation to take the gospel to those who will oppose us when we begin to share the gospel with them. That's what he's left. But I'm here to tell you that regardless of what the culture says, we've been left by Christ, our Lord, the gospel to share. Now, the question is this, are you doing it? Are you sharing? And you say, well, don't, wait a minute, preacher, you just told me everybody's going to oppose me. That doesn't make, that, listen, 
That doesn't make, now I'm from South Carolina. Let me use a Greek term here. That doesn't make a hoot and a hanny yeah. if you're opposed or not. Let me tell you, the world is hungry for the gospel. The world is hungry to hear that there is a God who loves them. Not long ago, I was dry, on a Sunday night, I, I, I wanted to, I was going to go home after church and make some nachos. And um, I thought to myself, I want some chili with this. And so I don't know where to get chili on Sunday night at 8.30 other than to pull into Wendy's and get some chili. So I pulled it around and I ordered some a, a chili and uh, I pulled up to the drive through window and standing there, it's dark, standing there in the light of that window, leaning out was a young lady somewhere in her 30s that when I pulled up, the window was down and she simply said, I'm standing in this window and I'm wondering if there's anybody out there that loves me. Now, I, I sit there and I'm trying to process this. I'm thinking through my mind, what did that girl just say? What, what, did she just say what I thought she said? And I tried to go back through in my mind what she said and she just stood there looking at me and it was as if the Holy Spirit was sitting next to me and the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart and he said, are you going to say anything? Do, do you suppose this is an open door? <laughs> and so I looked at the young lady and I said, ma'am, there is somebody who loves you so much. He was willing to die on a cross for you. I said, you don't ever have to wonder anymore if somebody loves you. I said, Jesus Christ does. And I began in about 90 seconds to give the gospel as fast as I could. Her, her boss walked in behind her. I could see her. He walked in behind her, and when he heard what I was doing, he kind of did this and backed out. Cars started pulling up behind me, and I'm sitting there just sharing with this girl about the gospel and how God loves her in Jesus Christ. And I simply said, I said, ma'am, I wish I had longer, but all I can tell you is this. Is to as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. I said, just trust in Jesus Christ. And as I drove off, I looked in the rearview mirror, and that girl was leaning out the window, and she was hollering, I'm trusting, I'm trusting. <laughs> now, let me, let me tell you, there's about 90 seconds right there of just sharing the gospel. I didn't have to get systematic theology or talk about Christology or hermatology or anything else. All I had to do was just tell them, ma'am, listen, let me tell you something. There's somebody that loves you and his name is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel we've been left. The world out there is hungry. Listen, two, uh, four weeks ago, I had a 30-year-old young man come through the line at church. He was invited to church. Do y'all ever invite people to church? I had a young single lady invite a co-worker to church. He came through the line, and I began to engage him in conversation. And I said, have you ever put your trust in Christ? He said, well, I'm Greek Orthodox. I said, no, 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 I, I'm not interested in that. What I want to know is, what have you ever done with Jesus Christ? And he said, well, I'm not sure what you mean. So I took him over in a room, and I shared the God. I just went down the Roman road. Now, I know that's not popular, and I could care less. I just sat there and went through Romans 3, 23, Romans, Romans 6, 23, Romans 10, 9, and 10. I just shared, went, just shared with him, and I got to it, and I said, wouldn't you like to put your trust in Jesus Christ? He said, you know, when you say it like that, I never have done that, and yes, I'd like to give my life to the Lord. 
And so I led this young man in his 30s. The next week, I had a lady bring a Jewish couple to church. And after church, I took him to my office, and I sat down with him, and I just engaged him. I said, hey, tell me what you do. I'm a carpenter. You know, where do you live? I live down here at the Gulf Coast. I do this, I do that, I do the other. How, tell me about your family. He tells me about his family. And then I just say, listen, I've got some really good news for you. And he says, what are you talking about? I said, your Messiah has come. Yep. And I share with him just the simple gospel, just a Roman road presentation because that's what I'm just used to doing. And I shared that with him. And I said, listen, sacrifice has already been made to pay for all your sins. Wouldn't you like to have that? He said, I sure would. And in my office, I led a Jew to Jesus Christ. So I'm on a roll now. I've got Greek Orthodox. I've got Jew. Listen, you got a Mormon? Just send them to me. That's the gospel right there that Jesus Christ has left us with. That's what you and I are called to risk and invest our lives in doing. Now, let me show you the second thing. And the second thing is this. Christ now comes and he says, don't play safe with the gospel. I don't know why we think we've got to guard the gospel. I don't know why we think that the gospel is so weak and so feeble and so breakable that we've got to just keep it all clutched up and quiet on the inside. Well, now watch. Verse 15, Jesus said when he returned, when that nobleman returned, after receiving the kingdom, he's saying, one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to have in my hand the title deed to all the kingdoms of the world. He ordered that these slaves to whom he had been given the money be called to, uh, to him so that he might know what business they had done. And, and the first appeared saying, Master, your mena has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You're to be an authority over 10 cities. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying when you're faithful with the gospel, there will be rewards for that. And those rewards in the New Testament are somehow tied to ruling. I can take you to Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, John talks about it right there. It is stated that he said, I saw thrones, plural, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says this, if we endure, we shall rule. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me show you something there. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talking to a church that couldn't settle their arguments with each other. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He says, can't you, can't you brothers and sisters in Christ Get inside the fellowship and solve your own problems. Well, there one of us thinks so. <laughs> Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you see that? Look, I'm right here. This, this is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge? When you die, please stop saying Oh, well, they've gone. They're an angel now. No, they're not. You will sit in judgment over angels in the world to come. 
He comes back, the second slave comes in and he says to him, listen, here is five minas and it's made five minas more. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. You're going to rule. There is obviously a reward for sharing the gospel. Now that's not why we do it. But Jesus says in the world to come, there will be this reward for sharing the gospel, being faithful with the gospel. But then there's a third. Now, let me, let me get technical with you. Verse 20. Another came saying. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for another. One is um, alas, which means another of the same kind. If I had a red delicious apple up here, I would say, what is this? You would say, well, that is a, an apple. And then I, I had a second red delicious apple. I would say I had another of the same kind. There's a second word in Greek, and it's called heteros. It means another of a different kind. If I had a red delicious apple here and a Granny Smith, and I said, what do I have? You'd say, well, you got apples but you would see there's clearly a difference. The shape is different. The color is different. It's an apple. But what I've got here is I've got a red delicious, and then I have a heteros, another of a different kind. Jesus doesn't say this guy's not a, a disciple. He doesn't say he's not a slave. We would say he doesn't say he's not a Christian. He would just simply say this is a believer of a different kind. Now, what's the difference? He doesn't share. He never shares the gospel. Another came saying, Master, here's your minnow, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. I kept the gospel hidden. I didn't go public with it. I didn't go out and engage uh, people with the gospel. I didn't go out and uh, give people the gospel. I just kept it quiet. I, listen, I wasn't about to go out and let people think that I'm some kind of fanatic but I'll paint my face up in the fall and act goofy and let people know that I support this team or that team. Uh, but that's a different, di see, that's a different kind there too as well. But I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want anybody, I might go out and they might ask me something I can't answer. That ever happened during the course of a day with you? People ask you stuff, you, you know the answer to everything but this? I have people ask me stuff all the time I don't know the answer to. I was afraid. I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. God's so hard. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you worthless slave. You knew this. You knew there's not a single one of us that will be able to stand before the bema seat of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm not saying you're not going to be saved. I'm not saying you're not saved. But I am saying you're going to answer to Christ at the bema seat with what you did with your Christian witness. And you say, that's hard. Listen, I ain't got hard yet. You will stand before the Bema seat one day before Christ and you will have to explain how you knew this was what we were supposed to do, but just somehow I never got around to it. 
Well, I'm afraid. I might be embarrassed. Somebody might ask, I'm not trained. I don't have a seminary education. I don't have all this ability to do that. And Jesus said, then why did you not put my money in the bank? Why didn't you at least just go public with being my servant? And he said to the bystanders, take the minna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Now I want to tell you something. When you refuse to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christian, you will miss the blessing in this life and you will forfeit whatever it is God has for us in the world to come. And you say, well, what does he have for us? I don't know. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. Nor has it entered into the mind all the things that God's preparing for those that love the Lord. But it's going to be good. He says, you will miss the blessing now. You will forfeit the blessing later. And they said to him, now here, pastor, verse 25 is baffling to me. Because the others say to him, well, master, he's got 10 minutes already. Now, I just want to tell you on that one thing, and I'll wrap up here. I don't know why it is that in the church we seem to honor apathy, laziness, and do nothing. Amen. I'm going to start amen in myself now. Amen. I don't know why we do it. We put people in leadership that cannot share the gospel. Please somebody stand up and tell me why. And you say, well, no, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've, I've, got an, I've got a position in the church. Then you ought to know how to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Your sharing the gospel with somebody is far better than your knowing the bottom line of this church. Far better. Far more important. Jesus will not ask you in the world to come, will you tell me what percentage you gave to this, that, or the other? But he will look at you and say, were you ashamed of me before men? Let me tell you what you do. March the 18th, 1990, something happened in Boston at the Gardner Museum that has gone down in heist history. Two men stole a half a billion dollars worth of artwork. Two men, a little after midnight, dressed as Boston police officers, came to the Gardner Museum. They buzzed in to the guard on the inside, and uh, he said, who are you, what do you want? He, they said, we are here in response to a telephone call about a disturbance. And the guard let him in. He let the two men in. They caught him and handcuffed him. <laughs> then they went and they got the other security guard that was there at the Gardner Museum in downtown Boston. And they handcuffed the both of them to a pipe in the basement. And they went back upstairs. And with razors, they began to cut out some of the greatest pieces of art in the world. Monet's, Rembrandt's. Degas, Vermeers, on their way out, they stole a Chinese vase. They took the finial off of a top of a Napoleonic flagpole that flew the colors of Napoleon. And since 1990 until this moment, they don't know where that stuff is. 
In fact, John Updike, who was a famous author that died just a few years ago, wrote a poem about the heist. And in that poem, he said, what they've done is they've taken all of that beautiful art and they've wrapped it in brown paper and stuffed it away somewhere. You know, back in 1911, they stole the Mona Lisa. It was a guy from inside the Louvre who did it. You know where he kept it for over two years? In the trunk of his car. One of the paintings that they stole is Christ in the Storm on the Galilee by Rembrandt, one of the most beautiful pieces of art in the world. A half a billion dollars. Most likely that stuff is wrapped up and stuck somewhere in brown paper in a storage house where nobody could find it. Do you know what happens when you don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is you keep hidden in your heart the most glorious thing that has ever happened. You keep wrapped up in a handkerchief like this man did, like this servant did. You keep hidden away the most beautiful piece of work in the universe done by the greatest creator. And that is the work of redemption in the life of a lost person. You are God's masterpiece. Why do, you, why do you keep it hidden? Why do you not tell? Why do you not share? Don't play it safe with the gospel.